Well, hello there. Welcome in. It is time for Downtown the Podcast. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell with you. This is where we do our daily show, Downtown, weekday afternoons, 4 to 6 Eastern Time, on the Zone Radio stations of Maine. We've got streaming audio on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com. Hope you are doing well, and we're glad to have you along for the ride. A couple of interesting guests this week, including uh, the founder of PETA, Ingrid Newkirk, who's got a new book out called Animal Kind. And whenever you come down on the whole issue of, of animal rights, it's a fascinating book, looking at first the capabilities of animals in terms of you know, things like communication, intelligence, uh, the way they relate to each other in the animal world and to humans. And then in the second half of the book, uh, encouraging ways to find alternatives to the way humans have used or exploited animals, depending on your perspective. And even if you like the occasional burger, I, I think you'll find it an interesting conversation. Ingrid Newkirk coming up in the second half of the podcast this week. In the first half, uh, Carrie, the second time we had him on our our daily show and rapidly becoming a favorite guest because he's got so many great stories. Comedy writing legend, Alan Zweibel. It really is amazing when you get talking with him. Think of somebody that you look up to in comedy, and it's very likely that he's worked with him on a project at some point. Yeah, his new book is called Laugh Lines, and it looks back at his more than four decades of writing funny stuff usually for other people. He explained to us his his brief time as a stand-up comedian. He knew it wasn't for him, but it was a chance to get some more exposure. He began writing for comics in the Catskills from an earlier generation and then became part of that first writing staff at Saturday Night Live in 1975. And, you know, he's not name-dropping. He was there. He was working with those people, but it's just us sitting here in the studio to hear him talk about Mm. Working with Gilda Radner on the Roseanne, Roseanne, Adana sketches with Belushi and Buck Henry on the Samurai sketches. <laughs> just, yeah, just amazing. Um, and, and delving a little bit into the process behind developing that stuff. Um, Weekend Update. He was a big part of that, too. I think he was the, the lead writer for Weekend Update in the early years. Mm. So a really great conversation. It is a lengthy one, but it's well worth it. Covering the SNL days, uh, his time with Gary Shandling as co-creator of its Gary Shandling show. Throughout it, great memories of his, his long friendship with Gilda Radner. And on to collaborations with Billy Crystal, Martin Short, well, and even even our own Stephen King. You'll hear it all in this conversation with Alan Zweibel. It's wonderful to have you back on with us. Uh, loved your book so much. I, I knew I would laugh. What I didn't expect is to tear up reading the forward when you, you talked about going back to SNL for the 40th reunion and, and thinking about all of those who weren't there for that. Well, you know, it was a very emotional time, and you're quite right. It, it swung both ways. It was a, a joyous celebration. It was 40 years, my God. And, you know, I went with my wife. I met my wife on the show, and it was um, a celebration of, of this new show that started uh, in 1975. And I looked around and I go, wow, look at all the people who are here from the Mick Jaggers to my pal Larry David. And it's just, you know, every which way in every year, athletes and whatever. So it was a great, great celebration. 
On the other hand, as I say in the book, you know, it's like going to your old neighborhood and you expect to see the same people living in the same houses as you were when you lived there. So when I walked into the studio, my last reference, and I had been to that studio a number of times since, but on an evening like this, you know, uh, there were apparitions. There was Belushi. There was Gilda. There was uh, a, a writing, uh, a mentor of mine named Herb Sargent and Michael O'Donoghue. So it was, um, it was a lot of memories that took place there. I was there for five years, and it was such an um, uh, impactful time in all of our lives. It, it was very emotional, you know. It, uh, plus, we were still alive. You know, it's just like a high school reunion. Who's here? Who's happy with their lives? Who's, um, you know, who's feeling good about things since then? And 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 and, and the nostalgia was just—you can imagine—it was um, it was just dripping with it. Uh, one of the many people that that you worked with, and I know was a hero of yours. He's always been a comedy hero of mine. It has passed away since the last time we talked with you. Can you talk a little bit about what Buck Henry meant to you in your career and as a friend? Uh, you know, both uh, aspects of Buck were monumental for me. I grew up, you know, uh, on Long Island. My dad worked in um, New York City, and when I would come in. <coughs> and run errands for him, no matter where the errand was, I'd make sure it went by uh, 30 Rock, you know, and because at the time, this was in the era of mid-60s, you know, Johnny Carson had the Tonight Show upstairs, and um, uh, there was a show called, that was the week that was, that starred uh, David Frost, and one of the guys in the show was Buck Henry, and watching that show, I took an immediate liking to him, and then I saw him in The Graduate, and I realized that he wrote The Graduate, <clears throat> and I was a huge fan of Get Smart, and he had co-created Get Smart with Mel Brooks. And so when I, and I, and in college, I used to watch Buck go on The Tonight Show and just talk to Johnny Carson for eight minutes about nothing, absolutely nothing that would make me laugh. So when he came to do the show, I was in awe. I must say I was a little nervous. I figured he was a guy that, um, he, he was Buck Henry. You know, he was godlike when it came to somebody who was witty and somebody who was a, a writer and uh, was such an influence on the culture. So when I became friends with him and we became very close friends, you know, the entree was I used to write these samurai sketches for John Belushi and Buck was in most of them. He was a perfect suit for John Samurai character. So because I wrote them and we rehearsed it together, we started becoming friendly, and then we went out for lunches and dinners and became terrific, terrific friends through the years. And um, I, what I got from Buck, more than anything, was longevity. I, what I got from him was, because here's a guy who, you know, we tend to look at somebody, our heroes especially, and look at them as like they were always on top. And I saw him through some failures that he had, some foul tips. And he just kept his head down, and he was a writer. And up until his death, at the age of 89, he was still writing. And he taught me, not by telling me, but by example, that we do what we do, and we just keep doing it. And, uh, yes, some things people will embrace, some things people for whatever reason, we'll turn their backs on. But this is um, the business we've chosen. This is the way 
that we were born and um, just keep going. So I got to tell you that um, he was a monster, monster loss when we got to work. A uh, big smile came to my face when you were recounting your childhood and uh, an album that that your parents used to play that I used to hear in my house all the time growing up, uh, an album called You Don't Have to Be Jewish. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm thrilled because so many people don't remember that anymore. My parents played comedy albums, and um, that was one of them. It was also Alan Sherman's record. Mm. And uh, when Kennedy was uh, president, it was the first family. Uh, but You Don't Have to Be Jewish was, it had this cast. You have Lou Jacoby and oh, only yes. Solanka and people that nobody's heard of since. Okay, really. <laughs> and um, it was little sketches and, uh, uh, you know, and little scenes, audible scenes that took place between these cast members. And um, it was, I remember my parents laughing, and I, usually I didn't like what they listened to. The comedy albums were different, and this was the oldest school, but it sure made me laugh a lot. Well, it was good preparation for your first professional work, uh, writing lines for comedians in the Catskills, as, as you call it in the book, writing for the Willie Lomans of stand-up comedy. Well, you know, and the reason I, I, I dubbed it as that is that these guys didn't have television shows. They didn't have... Um, you know, something that they strove that, uh, to have that. Their hopes were that they would play in these nightclubs in the Catskill hotels. And in the heyday of the Catskills, the 50s and the 60s, you know, the people like Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, and Red Buttons, and Alan King, and Tony Fields, that was a that was a breeding ground. And it was a jumping off point to huge careers that they got on the West Coast. They got their own TV series. And these guys, that when, by the time I got there, um, the Catskills were dying. Uh, the hotels were starting to close one by one. And these were the guys that were left behind. And I called them the Willie Lomans because they got in their car, and just like Willie Loman would drive up to Boston or wherever to sell, uh, they would go from, from their homes and drive up uh, to the different hotels. They would sell their jokes, okay? It, they were like the workers. You know, they weren't the executives, you know, and then they get back in the car after the show, and, you know, they, they probably got their paycheck, and they drove home. And there was something about the itinerant nature of not having, once again, a studio to go to, you know what I mean, where mm -hmm. they had a TV show. Um, it was the also ran. You know, they, um, they were really lonely. They went, they, they had their jokes, and they went up and sold their wares. And who knew that you could even get paid by the pound for writing jokes? Well, you know, that was <laughs> such a weird expression. Uh, when I started, this was in the uh, 72, uh, the going rate up there was $7 a joke. And then it started to, you know, if you got if the words around about you, you say, okay, I want $10, I want $12, you know, it went like that. But then the next thing was if you wrote routines, they paid you, per minute. That meant the delivered minute. Okay, so uh, usually a, a page of jokes is what would take a minute to tell. So there was four or five jokes on the page, and that was all about one subject. But I learned a phrase uh, which people seem to be intrigued by, 
is a pound of jokes, which was basically a, a handful of jokes about anything you thought was funny. And I had once asked, well, how much is in a pound? And, <laughs> you know, I said, well, 16. And I go, well, geez, you know, that means that each pound is an ounce. If you, if you multiply each joke by $7, which I ordinarily get, uh, for $100 for a pound, I'm losing money that way. So we would bargain how much was a pound. We're talking with Alan Zweibel. His new book is called Laugh Lines, 40 Years Trying to Make Funny People Funnier. And, and you, you wrote for those Catskill comics, but uh, is it safe to say that you wanted to write for your own generation and not your parents' generation? Well, what had happened was, um, you know, these guys were older than me, and I was the same age as their children. And so I was the same age as their kids who were rebelling against the establishment that they were talking about. So, you know, we, we, it was the age of Woodstock and uh, Vietnam and Watergate. So what I, uh, I didn't want to write for my parents. I, that wasn't my sweet spot. I lived in a different place mentally. So I took all the jokes those guys wouldn't buy for me. And there were two clubs in New York City at the time. One was called The Improvisation. The other was called Catch a Rising Star. And I took the jokes that the, those old guys wouldn't buy for me. I got on stage. And my plan was to deliver those jokes and um, with the hopes that uh, somebody would like the material. I didn't want to be a comic. It was my way of advertising how I wrote. And uh, ultimately, um, Lord Michaels um, liked the material and gave me a job on a new show that he was putting together called Saturday Night Live that was going to premiere the following fall. How would you describe yourself in that brief time as a stand-up comedian? Awful. <laughs> Just awful. <laughs> if people like the joke, they laughed and I felt fine. But I couldn't perform, you know. So uh, <laughs> if, if, uh, if somebody heckled me or, or if a joke fell flat, it was just, I didn't know what to do. I just started sweating. (laughs) (laughs) Last time you were on with us, uh, you told us about that first meeting, uh, the first writer's meeting with Gilda Radner hiding behind uh, the potted plant there. You went on to have such a great working and personal relationship with Gilda through the years. And I thought it was very interesting in the book. uh, You talked about, uh, well, a specific way that Gilda would help you with nerves when you had to appear in sketches. Well, she was, <laughs> what she would do, because was, it was live TV, and I've since gotten over it, thank God. I go on a lot of talk shows and I do speaking engagements, but in those days, I was so um, nervous. Uh, I was afraid if I go on live TV that, um, you know, I would either faint or I would just lose my words entirely and forget how to talk, or I had no control out of what t- out of my mouth, like sort of like a Tourette thing. And, and, and I was just so frightened that what Gilda would do is give me uh, a, shot of whiskey, a shot of whiskey or vodka or a little bit too much wine just to calm my nerves. I was interested to read about the process that you two went through. And it was it was a grueling process creating and refining the Roseanne, Rosanna Dana sketches. Well, we were married to that character. We put all our energy into whatever we wrote. And um, it was a great degree of sublimation, I would, at least it was for me. And so what we would do is go back and forth. I would write a draft, and I would submit it to her the day of the show. 
and she would take out a red pencil like a school mom and start marking it up. And then you know, I'd be pissed off because I was up all night, you know, writing. And here she is, you know, she's passing judgment and making like corrections. And as I left the dressing room and would go up to my office, I'd look at what she wrote and I'd go, oh, God, this is, she's right. This is better than what I had. And then um, I would uh, go, oh, I'll show her. And I would try to top her. And it would go back and forth all day uh, that by the time we got it on the air, you know, it was. By the, for the most part, really humming, but we weren't talking to each other. It was just, um, you know, it, it, was, it was like the worst of a bad marriage. You know what I mean? And it was what I would imagine. And um, but it, creatively, it was uh, we we had some success. The the makeup process after the, for lack of a better term, fights over these over the sketches. Uh, were sometimes lengthy, and you, there's a great story about uh, how Woody Allen helped solve one of the fights. Well, what had happened was, you know, like any couple, you know, the fight is over if one can make the other one laugh. And there was a, a brunch we attended, and the Gilda uh, wanted to make up, and I just felt like being, you know, in, in an argument that much longer. I needed to be mad longer than she needed to be mad. And so when we were in a, um, somebody's apartment and there was a brunch, and she tried to get my attention to make me laugh, make funny faces, do stuff, and I kept turning away. I didn't want to give her the satisfaction of me laughing, and I wanted to stay mad. And at one point, Woody Allen happened to come by, and he had a couple of plates filled with uh, brunch stuff, you know, bagels and uh, you know, locks and and. and, and two cups of coffee, and Gilda knew that he was my idol. And so I sort of saw out of the corner of my eye. She stopped him. She put a hand on each of his shoulders, and he didn't know who she was. And he, she said, I'm sorry, but i got to make Bell laugh. So there was a step down into her living room. She sort of pushed him down the step, and all the food went flying all over the place. And I started <laughs> laughing, and that was the end of our fight. <laughs> Uh, you also write about uh, the most infamous guest hosting appearance ever on SNL, uh, Milton Berle, on there, and well, you got to well, you got to see the real legend of Milton Berle up close and personal. Well, his legend preceded uh, him, and he. Um, I had written before I got to SNL. I wrote for a lot of uh, Friars Club roasts, and he was generally the roast master, and um, you know what? Those were all sad luncheons at that time and because the club wasn't um, you know co-ed this was in the you know uh, earlier days this was in the 70s when I started going there it wasn't, wasn't until the late 80s that they admitted women so it was a big boys club and they would have a roast that would have 2,000 people in the ballroom of a huge hotel and uh, Milton you know I would I never wrote to him but I would write about him you know, for whoever was, um, you know, I was, was ever part of the roast that I was writing for, you know, and the thing you do with any of those things is uh, you write towards the, the person stereotyping, you make fun of it. And the two stereotypes that Nolan Burrell had was one, that he stole other people's jokes, but two, is that he uh, had the, um, well, let's just say the longest differential 
okay? Uh, <laughs> it was like a walking tripod. And um, when he came to host the show, I was in his dressing room, and he was wearing a uh, a short um, bathrobe that came sort of like mid-thigh. Uh, and I said to him, you know, I said, boy, it's really interesting that I'm meeting you because for so many years, I wrote about your penis, and, um, you know, here I am, I'm meeting you. And, uh, you know, I used to write these jokes like, you know, uh, it was so big that um, uh, after his uh, circumcision, they used the, uh, the foreskin to cover the infield at Yankee Stadium, you know, <laughs> those kind of jokes. And um, he said, oh, you've never seen it. I go, well, you know, I was, I was tongue-tied, and he goes, would you like to? And I was somewhere between the N and the O in no when he, you know, he just opened his robe, and yeah, he took out oh, an anaconda. It, it was, you know, yeah. So I thought, but and he was notorious for that. He would take it out and show it to anybody, whether they wanted to see it or not. That's what he was doing. Alan Zweibel with us here on Downtown. You mentioned you met your wife Robin on the show. One of my favorite stories in the book is at the time that both of your mothers were cast as extras in a sketch. Well, our parents hadn't met yet, and Robin was a production assistant, and her job, among the many duties of a production assistant, was to fill a room you know, on a sketch you know, with extras. And there was a, a bar mitzvah sketch. Uh, Kirk Douglas was the host, uh, and he played the bar mitzvah boy's grandfather. So there was a dais that had, you know, Belushi and uh, Bill Murray and Gilda and, and Kirk Douglas, you know, like I said, as the, as the grandfather. And so Robin thought it was a good idea that maybe our, our mothers could meet. So she cast them both to be extras in it. And Robin had no way of knowing that uh, my mother would get really upset that Robin's mother had a better table at the bar mitzvah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, a little cat <laughs> ensued. Uh, you eventually left Saturday Night Live and, and moved on and, and eventually would team up with Gary Shandling to create uh, one of the most uh, influential shows in television. It's Gary Shandling's show. When did you realize the level of chemistry that you two had together? Uh, pretty immediately. We had dinner. Uh, we, um, we made each other laugh. And... Um, for me, it was like lightning striking a second time. It was, um, she was, um, she was like Gilda. You know, I told him what my, my relationship with Gilda was like. You know, with Gilda, the chemistry was in such where he, um, Cooper brought out the woman in me, and I brought out the guy in her. And I told that to Gary, and we just took turns, you know, being the woman for <laughs> four years that we worked together. He was not an easy person to work with, though. Gary was a perfectionist. Um, Gary didn't have a wife and children like I did and like most of the writers did. So his work was his life. And because of that, uh, he didn't think twice of calling you at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to discuss a joke. Think twice of when I would give him an edited show for him to call me in the wee hours on a Sunday morning and say, gee, why is that a two shot? Why isn't it a single of me? And I would go, geez, Gary, just kind of waited until nine o'clock, 10 o'clock. But this was, he was so focused. And from everything that 
I knew about Gary when he did uh, Larry Sanders' show, it was very much the same thing. He, he was a double-edged sword because Gary was a genius. Gary was a great writer, and there are so many writers, including Judd Apatow, uh, who um, learned from Gary. I learned from Gary. So there was something about him that you want, you were attracted to. You felt that you were in the company of really a brilliant, you know. And But at the same time, as flattered as you were, that he liked you and wanted to work with you, it then became demanding in a way that uh, uh, was very difficult, very, very difficult to withstand. Working on that show also gave you uh, the opportunity to provide Gilda with her last television appearance. What was that experience like? Well, what happened was, yeah, you know, when I moved out to L.A. to um, do a Gary Shanley show, and I moved Robin, and we only had two children, we eventually had a third, who was Gilda's, you know, Gilda's her godmother. Uh, when we, you know, uh, Gilda informed me that she had ovarian cancer. And um, she said, I asked her, what I, how can I help? What do I do? I was just, you know, beside myself with this news. And she said, make me laugh. That was my role when mm-hmm. my buddy um, uh, got sick. And at one point, you know, she wanted to come on a Gary Shannon show. We, Gary and I would do a show every week. We would send her a cassette like it was a Hallmark card. I would talk to her, tell her jokes on the phone. That's what we did. You know, that was my role. And when she, we went for a walk on the beach one night, and she was talking about the possibility of doing the, the Shandling show. And it, she got cold feet. She hadn't been on TV in six, seven years, something like that. And she was afraid that the studio audience, when she came on stage, wouldn't even remember her. And then uh, I was just about starting to say, don't be silly, when she says, you know, I've got to do the show. My comedy is the only weapon I have against this thing. And then she said, can you help me make cancer funny? And she came on the show. And um, she came through the door, unsuspected. The audience didn't suspect it. We didn't announce it. She was a surprise guest. And the audience God, this was an audience she didn't think would remember her. They went to Cirque, mm. you know. She didn't look the same. She had shorter hair, and she, you know, she was a little frail. And um, they really embraced her. And uh, she uh, was nominated for an Emmy for that appearance. And we thought she was in uh, remission. And we started talking about creating a show for her, Gary Shanling and myself creating a show for Gilda for HBO. And then um, the disease caught up with her, and she ultimately uh, passed. But um, that was her last television performance, yeah. And even after she passed, as you point out in the book, she she bailed you out of a, a little bit of a rut when you created Bunny Bunny. Yeah, you know something? I had had, after Gilda died, I had had a couple of... Um, <laughs> I had a movie that... Uh, uh, it's awful, and I had a TV series that got canceled. And Robin, my wife, said, you know, you should write something about you and Gilda. And I resisted. I didn't want to capitalize on a friendship. And she said, the hell with that. 
your best friend died, you haven't even cried yet. This is like three, four years after she mm-hmm. passed. So um, as a way of dealing with her death, what I did was I went back in my mind and I recreated the whole relationship as I remembered it. Where did we meet? Oh, it was behind that tree in Lauren's office. I, you know, and I went through the events of the 14 years that we were platonic lovers, if you will, and it ended, you know, 225 handwritten pages later with a, uh, a eulogy I gave at her memorial. And um, I figured, okay, catharsis is over, and uh, I had no intention of getting it published. I showed it to some friends, including Gary Shanling and Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks, and, you know, and ultimately Gene Wilder, who killed his husband, just as a nostalgic thing. You know, they knew me, they know me and Gilda, and they all urged me to, um, to get it published. So ultimately I did. And uh, the book was a, um, oh, it was a big seller. And um, because it was written in dialogue, it was easy to perform. Mm. He talks, I talk, he talks, you know, she talks, I talk, she talks, I talk. I wrote it that way because I wanted the intimacy to be the words touching each other again. I didn't want the formality of grammar and semicolon and punctuation, <laughs> you know. I, I, I just wanted the words, you know, to touch each other again. So because it was written that way, uh, it lent itself to be uh, delivered, uh, spoken. So Gilda's Club was being uh, founded around that time, and James L. Brooks, the great uh, writer, director who won Oscars for Terms of Endearment and the Broadcast News and created Mary Tyler Moore and a little thing called The Simpsons, <laughs> he um, staged some readings that were fundraisers for this new thing called Gilda's Club. And we did one in L.A., and we did one here in New York, both of them. Uh, Jason Alexander read Alan, me, and Julia Louis Dreyfus read uh, Gilda's part. And um, uh, so, yeah, it, it helped found or uh, raise money initially for Gilda's Club, but a byproduct of it was, um, you know, I'd done something that was successful again. And it, it, it was, um, you know, it was a lesson that, that if you write something that you love and you do it from your heart, um, There'll be an honesty to it that people will be attracted to. You mentioned the TV series, and well, it's hard to believe you couldn't make those those cut-ups, Ryan O'Neill and Farrah Fawcett. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that, that, that last duo. <laughs> and I had, you know, they were surrounded by a cast of supporting actors <clears throat> that had maybe four or five Tony Awards among them. And the writer's room had about a dozen any awards. And um, nobody could figure it out. We just couldn't figure out how to do it. And the show was mercifully uh, canceled. I think we did 13 episodes. And, uh, yeah, (laughs) that's what one would call a foul tip. You had a big success when you collaborated with your longtime friend, uh, Billy Crystal on his wonderful show, 700 Sundays. Did that really, in many ways, bring your relationship full circle? Well, it did in the sense that when we started out, uh, we were friends when we were both starting out in 1974. 
And um, I lived with my parents after college uh, in Woodmere, Long Island. He lived about four towns over at Long Beach, Long Island. He was already married. They had a daughter. And he would pick me up every night in his Volkswagen. We'd drive it to the city. Um, we would do our respective, you know, acts on stage. And then he'd drive me home. We would listen to the cassettes in the car and critique each other how we did, which joke worked, which didn't. Maybe you say it this way, maybe you say it that way. And um, and, and then, you know, I got SNL and he left uh, New York. He went out uh, to do soap. And um, we reunited when I moved out to L.A. I shared a suite. Uh, Rob Reiner's company was called Castle Rock. And in one of the suites there, you know, and Rob, first of all, he hosted the third setting I ever. We always liked each other. Well, that was a great thing. And he came up as a guest on Gary Shandling's show. So it was really great. But I, I shared a suite with Larry David and Billy Crystal. The three of us started out like the same day back in the 70s, you know. And uh, so we always were very appreciative uh, of the irony of the whole thing and how fortunate is this, what are the odds. And um, Billy and I had not worked with each other. And I was working on a movie script with uh, Jesse Nelson, this wonderfully talented uh, writer. She wrote uh, a movie called Corinna, Corinna, that she wrote, directed. And since then, she, she wrote the book, A Waitress, the Broadway play, right. the musical. And um, she and I were working on a script. And Billy stuck his head in the office, and he asked me to come in. I followed him into his office, and uh, he said he was thinking of doing a uh, a one-man Broadway show called 700 Sundays about his family. And he got it titled because, um, you know, Billy's dad worked two, three jobs, worked six days a week to support the family, and Sundays was their day, you know, to go to a ball game, you know, go to the boardwalk or bowling, whatever. And uh, Billy's dad died suddenly when uh, Billy was 15, so he calculated that he had roughly 700 Sundays with him. So, hence the title. And Billy asked me if I would collaborate with him, uh, on it with him. And I said, my God, yes. And um, uh, we did it, and it's, you know, I was just honored that somebody would trust me with their life, would trust me with the characters that he was paying tribute to, allowed me to put words in their mouths. I never met these people. You know, I met mm. his brothers. I know his brothers to this day, but I didn't know his parents. I didn't know his aunts and uncles and extended family. But, you know, I'm a Jew from Long Island. He's a Jew from Long Island. It's not like we were from foreign, you know, planets, you know. It was reminiscent of my own family, and uh, we had a lot of fun and a great, a big, big success with it. And to this day, uh, I would say it's definitely one of the highlights. It's not the highlight. And, and most recently, Billy and I collaborated on another thing. We wrote a, a script together, a movie that he directed, and that he stars in with Tiffany Haddish. It's called Here Today. And it's been edited, and I think they still have to do a little post-production on the music. But, um, you know, whenever movie theaters open again, it will be released, you know. And, um, uh, and we were both 
you know, it was um, very, very touching for the two of us and very, very significant on, on, on a lot of levels. You also ended up collaborating with Martin Short, and that also brought to fruition a friendship that Gilda wanted to see happen for many years. I, I had never heard of Marty Short when we started SNL. You know, he wasn't on SCTV. I didn't know who it was. They uh, lived together in Toronto when they were both up in Second City, and she had told me about this guy, and I, I took her word. But she spoke about him in such hyperbolic terms, like the funniest person on the planet, this and that. And we were doing a show with Belushi and Aykroyd and, and <laughs> Lorraine Newman. You know, what do you mean? What, what are you saying? And then when I became familiar with him, I went, oh, my God. I never saw anybody do so many things so good. He sang, he danced, his body moved in such a funny way that bodies don't usually go, you know. can impersonate that I really shocked quick wit. And uh, she wanted, she said, I want you guys to be friends. And years later, when we were living in L.A., I knew him socially, uh, and we liked each other, but he was having a show that was Broadway bound. It was out of town in San Francisco. Uh, we had the same manager who called me up after I came over the book store and said, listen, they're having a little trouble with the show. They flew me out to San Francisco. I thought I, thought I could be of help. And, um, you know, it was San Francisco, then Toronto, Chicago, and then Broadway. And it was... Um, a lot of fun. I see the show, then I go back to my hotel room. I write some jokes, call Marty in his hotel room, and we'd be writing jokes until 2, 3 in the morning and put it into the show the next night. And it just kept on, um, it flourished. You know, so to this day, he's a good pal, and he and I are working on something together as we speak. That's how much we like working with each other. It was sort of um, gained by Gilda. You worked with Dave Barry on the wonderful book Lunatics, but what I didn't know until reading your book was that you also uh, got involved with the Rock Bottom Remainders. Our station is owned by Stephen King. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, I Dave Barry and I met uh, when Steve Martin was, uh, uh, was given the Mark Twain Award, which is like the Comedy Lifetime Achievement Award. And there was a big, big uh, ceremony uh, at, at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., and Dave was a presenter. He, he gave a speech, you know, and Steve told him, you know, that he'd like to, Dave to give a speech about him. I was there that night because Larry Dave was also speaking, and I helped Larry with his speech. Uh, Dave and I met each other at, at the hotel afterwards. And uh, we became friends. We saw each other many times. We raised each other on our respective book tours. And then our wives, that they became friends. And I said to Dave, why don't we write something together? He was in Florida. I live in New Jersey. So we wrote a novel called Lunatics that um, was a big hit. And he and I uh, alternated chapters. It was a feud between two neighbors. So he was the first, he took the person of one. Uh, uh, the neighbors and I took the other one. And um, again, there was a book tour to promote that. And then at one point, he asked me, and I knew what the rock bottom remainders were. And, um, you know, and for those of your viewers, viewers, <laughs> for those of you people, 
people who are looking at your radio right now, the uh, the Rock Side of Remains is, is a band comprised of best-selling authors. And so there's Dave Barry and Stephen King and Mitch Album and Amy Tan, you know, and Scott Terrell. And, and, and uh, he said, would you like to be a remainder? And I said, well, gee, I don't, I can't sing and I don't play an instrument. He said, oh, you're going to fit in just fine. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, I was overqualified. So, yeah, I perform with them maybe about a dozen times now all over the country, and it's great fun. And finally met Stephen King, I guess it was about a year ago. We were in Minneapolis, and he was with uh, uh, he performed with us. And God, I really like this guy. What a, you look at him, and you just see the first thing is you see thousands and thousands and thousands of pages that he turned out, you know. And I got to spend time with him and made him laugh. And he took a liking to my wife, Robin, and um, found him very, very uh, accessible. And um, it's really fun doing what I do because you get to meet and work with your heroes. Well, uh, Alan, the book is absolutely wonderful. Laugh out loud, funny, and also makes you tear up more than one time along the way. Laugh lines, 40 years trying to make funny people funnier. Get it? Uh, it's out officially today. You will love it. We also look forward to seeing here today once that's out. And, and thank you once again for coming on and, and talking with us this afternoon. Appreciate you having me on. I'm thrilled you like the book. And, uh, I hope to speak to you again. Alan Bell talking about his terrific new memoir, Laugh Lines, here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll pause a word from our friends at Cross Insurance, and when we come back, Ingrid Newkirk on her book, Animal Kind. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast. Our next guest was a founder of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, some 40 years ago. She's the author of a number of books, including a new one entitled Animal Kind. Here's our conversation with Ingrid Newkirk on Downtown. Ingrid, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Rich. My pleasure. This is a wonderful book that you've written along with Jean Stone. What did you What did you hope for people to learn by reading Animal Kind? Well, thank you. I think people do like it if they like animals at all. It's divided into two parts. As you said, the first part is these remarkable discoveries about animals. And I wanted to really blow people away with how wondrous their animals' emotions are, their communication abilities, their intelligence, what good parents many of them are, how faithful they are as companions, and that they have senses that we've either lost, or in many cases we never had, that allow them to do things that we could never do without technology. And the second part is about now that we know who animals are and that we're more linked rather than ranked, that we should treat them as other individuals, other nations even, and it should inform our behavior. We can find fabulous things that we can do these days that don't involve harming animals and killing them and taking things away from them. So it's for people who care about animals at all, 
and prepare to have their jaws drop when they see <laughs> how fabulous they are and then what they can do about it. Well, yes, and you reel us right in with the, the first animal we encounter in the book. Can you share a little of the story of Rico the Border Collie? Well, Rico is not unique, which is pretty phenomenal. Rico is a Border Collie who, um, and, and there are many of these examples, if um, he, he could actually uh, name, if you gave him the name of a toy, he could go into the room next door and pick that toy out of a heap of 100, 200, 300 toys. And there was one actual, uh, one dog who actually could pick out a toy from a thousand toys. He knew mm. a thousand names of toys. And what was interesting in both cases is that someone said, the name of a toy the dog had never heard before. And that dog went into the next room, looked at the heap of toys, couldn't figure out, what are you talking about? Came back, cocked his head, and the person said it again. And the dog went next door, rummaged around, and came back with the only toy he'd never seen before. And that was the toy that they had mentioned. Part of the issue, I think, is, as you point out in the book, that uh, human beings tend to think of intelligence as being part of a continuum, and that's not always the case. No, it, it isn't. I mean, it's ridiculous to think that only human intelligence counts because Jane Goodall once said, you know, you could uh, drop some super intelligent person in the middle of the jungle with a baby chimpanzee. And who would do better? <laughs> you know, the chimpanzee <laughs> would know uh, to what leaves to put over their head when it was raining, which plants they could and couldn't uh, eat, how to f survive and thrive, whereas the person would probably not make it. So when we know that we need, for example, a GPS or we need to ask someone directions or we need a map, we're lost without them, usually. We have a very poor sense of direction, studies have shown, as human beings. We're, we're just useless. But um, animals, they guide themselves by the stars, the position of the sun, the Earth's magnetic field, even low-frequency radio waves. And we didn't even know there were radio waves until, I don't know, when was Marconi, 100 <laughs> years ago or less. So, yes, there are different ways. There is, however... A test that um, ethologists who study animal behavior have used called the mirror test. And it's supposed to be an, in an intelligence test. If you show tribal people, human beings, a mirror for the first time, they'll usually attack it. They think that it's someone else coming for them. Chimpanzees get around just as tribal peoples do to recognizing themselves in the mirror and realizing, oh, that's me. And a little fish called the wrasse, who is also known as the teeth-cleaning fish, because big fish actually line up mm. in order to get their <laughs> teeth cleaned by him. You can see it on the National Geographic channel, like you go to the dental hygienist. And um, <laughs> he can recognize himself or herself in the mirror and start preening, just like Kim Kardashian. <laughs> <laughs> I was fascinated with the story of the blind mole rats and how they're able to navigate. Yes, and, and there are so many other ways that animals can feel their way, they can sense their way, they can hear their way through things. Um, there's just been a study actually with dolphins, where dolphins who um, are blindfolded, and I'm not in favor of this, but it, the, the, the researchers, researchers do this, they blindfold the dolphins, 
and they ask them to mimic what a human being is doing in the water. They can't see that human being, but they sense that they're either turning in circles or they're doing a handstand, and they'll imitate exactly what they're doing because they can pick up with echolocation, with feeling the waves, all sorts of things, just the way dogs now we know can actually anticipate that someone's biochemistry has changed, their body chemistry has changed, and they're about to have an epileptic seizure. Communication uh, between and among animals uh, is incredible to learn about as well. And I, I was taken with, well, the subtlety of the way cows communicate. Yes, and, and we didn't know this for eons, but cows actually, in addition to being clever, if you allow them to be clever, because they can operate a water pump just by watching for an, enough time or open a gate latch with their tongues, they use very subtle facial uh, changes that another cow can see and we don't notice. It's the same way we've figured out, if you look at a horse, a horse will use her ears and her tail to communicate. You know, all these animals have subtleties that we don't know about. A tree frog will tap out messages on bark and an elephant will be able to send messages subsonically a mile or two miles away to another herd to say, I know there's a drought, but I've just found a water hole, or guard your children, someone is collecting them to go to a zoo, or they don't know where they're going, but collecting them. And the herd of elephants a mile or two away know what that message means. To us, it's just a rumble, but to the other elephants, it's a distinct message. It's a communication that they know the meaning of. We're talking with Ingrid Newkirk on downtown. Her book is Animal Kind, and there is love in the animal kingdom. Is it, is it a stretch to say that sea turtles may be the gigolos of the animal world? <laughs> There's a lot of that going on in the animal world. But one of the things I like to concentrate is the wonderful fidelity that crops up, perhaps in unexpected places. Yes, the prairie um, vole, that's who you want to model yourself after. Well, what about the pigeon? Yes. The, the pigeon, you know, people despise them often, and they call them flying rats, but we could learn a thing or two from them. The male and the female pigeon, they not only bond with what's basically their high school sweetheart, and they're with that partner for life unless some accident occurs, but the male and the female, each of them makes milk, for their baby in their crop, that little bit under their under their beak, their neck. And they take turns feeding their children and looking after them. So if you see two pigeons and one has their beak down the other ones, they could be kissing because they're very, very sensuous birds, but they also could be feeding their baby. As you mentioned, the second half of the book is about uh, new ways to show compassion for animals once people have learn to appreciate them even more by learning the first half. And experimentation on animals has been around literally forever, but we are learning new ways to do that. Yes, and, and there are very exciting advances. Um, it used to be, you know, we'd say that we need to move away from the patter of little feet in the laboratory. A lot of mice, and mice are just small mammals like me or a dog, only smaller, um, they feel pain, they feel fear, 
and yet they've been the uh, the object of convenience because they're small, they're easy to handle, they're cheap, and so on, which is not very scientific. So everything is done to them. But nowadays, we do have things that are so exciting, like organs on a chip. You can have a human lung on a chip. Whole human DNA is on the Internet. And we have these high-speed computers. You can program them with human information, not information from a rat or a beagle. And you get information back as to what a substance will do if you give it to a human being, which is relevant. And it's particularly relevant. You see these ads on television now for, you know, if you've been hurt by this drug or that drug, here are the lawyers who can help you. Um, it's always the case that 95% of drugs that are tested on animals go on not to work satisfactorily in human beings. So we need to get away from this old method of doing things. And people can help just in the simplest ways. You go to the supermarket or the pharmacy, you buy a shampoo or makeup or a floor cleaner, you can look for the Leaping Bunny logo or the words mm. not tested on, on animals, no animal ingredients, and you'll be doing something good. Yes, and as you say in the book, Ingrid, put your money where your values are. Yeah, I think that's very, very important. The power of the purse, I like to call it, because when people say, I'm just one person, what can I do? You are super powerful because you might give $100, say, to an animal protection group. And that's fantastic. They need it to get investigations and all the things they're doing. But then if you go to the store and you buy things that come from hurting and killing animals, you'll be spending thousands in a year. And so if you can step away Today, everybody knows what a vegan is. It's not a person from Las Vegas. <laughs> you, can, you can get a vegan cookbook. You can buy taste-alikes that will not deprive you of any taste, but will not have you supporting the slaughterhouse. And the same is true. Nobody needs fur anymore. We're not survivalists. We don't need leather anymore. We've got pineapple leather and leather made from grapes and cactus and Apple skins, you don't even notice unless you look at the label. And if you've got a kid in school or your teacher or parent, there are now these synthetic frogs right. that you can cut up, take the organs out, not dangle them in front of a, a little girl, the real ones, <laughs> but they're synthetic. And it's just the same, except it's clean, there's no formaldehyde, and you didn't destroy wildlife take it from the environment. So there are a million things you can do. I have, I think since I was a, a small child, I, I've never enjoyed circuses. The, the chapter on animals as entertainment, I, I found particularly sad that it, even in, in television shows and in movies, uh, that is not an easy life for the animals. Oh, it's so terrible. I mean, can you imagine? Many of them are wild, of course. And an, uh, an elephant particularly, I'm so glad there is no longer a Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey circus that's folded up its tents and gone home. And that's happening with circuses using animals across the country because elephants chained up for life, swaying back and forth, back and forth, going out of their minds. Tigers turning around and around in the cages, 
stairs being lugged from town to town. We don't need any of that. We've got virtual reality. We've got all these wonderful entertainments on the Internet. We've got super games that kids can go. They, they won't run out into the street anymore to see the animal circus. And we have things like Cirque du Soleil, which doesn't use any animal performance. It uses human acrobats and fire eaters and trapeze artists, and they're phenomenal. And, of course, they're paid, and they get to go home at the end of the day. <laughs> and if they don't want the job, they can quit, which the animals can never, ever do. They'll die in the circus. So, yes, we've got fabulous amusements now, even these sea world kind of um, what we call abusement parks. They're marine parks. Those poor orcas and those dolphins who are in a cement tank can't use their sonar. They chew on the bars underneath the, the water, and they're just swimming in their own waste. Don't go. The book may change the way you think about animals. It's called Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to show them compassion. Ingrid Newkirk, uh, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the book today. Thank you very much. Ingrid Newkirk with us here on Downtown, the podcast, talking about her book, Animal Kind. Our thanks to Ingrid and thanks to the great Alan Zweibel, his book uh, called Laugh Lines, getting amazing reviews everywhere. And our thanks to Alan for coming and back on with us. And thanks to you for joining us as well. Uh, if you're a first-timer, spread the word, tell your friends, subscribe, leave a good review, send cash. Right, many of those things may all be acceptable. The first few we really strongly encourage. Uh, we hope you'll join us next time for Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.